This is episode 467 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today we will examine the condition of the church and the stress placed on it by an overreaching government. And we will clearly see we are living like Jews in Nazi Germany in 1934. We are truly living in Bonhoeffer's Germany. How is that possible, you ask? Well, recently, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to decision, denied an appeal for a Nevada church to allow additional worshipers to join in-person services based on building capacity during the virus. Nevada has placed a 50-person cap on all places of worship, no matter the capacity of the building. But that cap doesn't apply to casinos, movie theaters, or restaurants. Does something seem amiss to you? And in California, churches must meet outdoors and limit the number of participants. Plus, there are no potluck or fellowship dinners that are allowed. There's no singing, even in small home groups. And all of this is happening while riots and demonstrations are permitted and encouraged by the same government officials, yet ordinary citizens like you and me must comply with the COVID-19 restrictions. Why? because our governmental officials state the demonstrations are too important to regulate. But churches aren't that important. So how are we to respond to this hypocrisy? The answer may surprise you, and it must include giving unto Caesar what is Caesar, but giving unto God what is God's. So let's jump right in and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We have been talking about 2 Chronicles 7.14, and I know many of us have viewed this as just a sermon. Oh, yeah, it's the prayer sermon. We've heard it over and over again. We heard it when Clinton was in office. We heard it when Obama was in office. Now Trump's in office, and we're hearing it again. I know what it says. If my people who are called by my name, I even have memorized it, will humble themselves. Okay, and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And we've, we've heard this, we've heard it talked about in the past. I have, you know, pastors on television will talk about this periodically. We break down all the Hebrew words and try to determine exactly what it means. And, and we have tried to do that with more of a emphasis and an unction on it's not what it says that matters, it's what we do with what it says. To humble themselves. We spent a whole week talking about that. Probably the, the hardest thing to do to recognize that we are poor in spirit, to recognize that we don't have all the answers, to recognize that we are just flesh and blood made of dust and God is sovereign, that there are things out of our control. And as a matter of fact, Almost everything should be out of our control because that drives us into the arms of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. And then pray. We talked about prayer. Talked about the kinds of prayer that we pray. Bedtime prayer and blessings prayer and kitty prayers and, and you know, arrow prayers and just weak prayers. And then sometimes there's humble prayers and then there's broken prayers and there's intercessory prayers and there's imprecatory prayers. And, and the whole point of this is hoping that our prayer life would, would really increase. And yet it's been a month or so since we preached on prayer several times, prayer and then prayer and fasting and the importance of prayer and then the importance of men leading in prayer and men still don't lead in prayer. And it's like, God, we're out of time, guys, literally, we're out of time. And seek my face last week, talking about what it means to seek the presence of God, to have this intimate time with God where he reveals things to you and his word becomes alive on, on Wednesday nights. We're talking about how to hear God's voice. And this coming Wednesday, it's how to have an experience, a life-changing experience with God's word. And I can teach it and we can learn the, the recipe or the to-do list, but unless the men and you, the ladies, and unless we do this ourselves and put it into action, it's just like going to a class and getting a degree in an area that we're never going to work in. It's, it makes us feel puffed up, but it doesn't change anything. And turning from their wicked ways, we're going to talk a little bit about that towards the end. And, and this is where sanctification comes in. This is where it really 
this is where it really hits us. Well, I, I disagree with abortion, and I'm not a homosexual, and I'm not sexually active, and I, I don't do these terrible, horrible, black hat kind of things. And well, how about the stuff God's convicting you about, like how you spend your time and the bitterness and anger that maybe you have or, or, or how you spend your money and, and those kind of things? Well, I, I know I, I just, I just, I'm just not going to deal with those because we don't think they're wicked ways. They're just imperfections in our character. But wickedness is defined by the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ through his word, not by our culture. Then I will hear from heaven, yes, Lord, you have to hear us. And I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I do not, on Sunday mornings, try to preach the newspaper and then grab your scriptures to try to somehow figure out what's going on in the world and try to line it up with some sort of prophetic passage. However, um, I'm shocked at how quickly this stuff is happening. I mean, let me just explain to you the current situation. We're in an uh, alleged coronavirus pandemic, although the CDC for the last six weeks have says we're no longer in a pandemic. But our news media blast all the time. First of all, it was projections of cataclysmic death. Do you remember that? Like the Black Plague. And everybody was concerned. Some people were frightened. And so, therefore, here's what we need to do. You have to wear masks. No, masks don't work. Well, now they do work. We have to practice social distancing. We, some of us even got our, we didn't want to go to the grocery store. So we had our food brought into us because that's what they suggested we do when this thing happened. And then, you know, the, the hospital numbers are going up and then there's this big crisis about uh, vents and we don't have enough. And so Trump's trying to move them from state to state. And, and then you have some states that are taking corona-infected people and putting them in nursing homes. And then the numbers skyrocket after that. I mean, it was insane what was going on. Economies tanking. We're going to have to put everybody in a shelter at home kind of deal. We're going to shut down schools, but it was be okay because all we're going to do is try to level out the curve. We don't want the curve to spike so much that the cases, and it's a real thing here, the, 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 the cases overwhelm our ability in the hospital to take care of that. Okay. Well, after that was resolved, then all of a sudden it's no longer the deaths we talk about anymore because the deaths are actually kind of percentage-wise are going down because we're testing more people, but the numbers keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's all we talk about are these incredible numbers where 90-something people, 99 people out of 100, 98% of the people recover from this, yet there are those that, that actually die from this like they do any respiratory infection, and Sorry, we can't open up the state. Sorry, we've got to extend phase two. And, and then there's these other states that have even worse rules about social distancing and, and coming together as a group than we do. And so in the beginning, what we did was, which what any prudent Christian would do, since we don't know the severity of what's going on, we decided to, to take for the sake of others, for the sake of people like Shirley, you know, who's in a high-risk group and stuff of that nature, we decided to forego, like everybody else did, our worship services. And we did them virtually, like everybody else did. And, and that was okay, because we were all in this together. We were all trying to figure out how we can stem this. We're all bonding together, and, and everybody seemed to be on the same page. And we followed the mandates, but never once... Never once, please understand this, does the, did the church advocate its headship to the state. The church headship has always been Christ. So we voluntarily, for a season, this is the church in general, for a season, for the benefit of this crisis that we knew no idea how bad it was going to be, set aside our right and our privilege and what the commands say about meeting together and, and all that kind of stuff for the sake of the common good. That was honorable. That was expected. As a matter of fact, that's what has been the history of the church throughout the generations. But then things changed, and as they always do. Then there's a power grab, 
And then you have some governors and some mayors and some other officials have decided that, you know, churches aren't really that important. I'm anti-Christian. We have other we have other industries out there that we have deemed essential, but churches are not, such as bars and such as marijuana dispensaries out west, such as tattoo parlors. I mean, that's, that's and where you get your ears pierced. I mean, those are essential industries. Nevertheless, the church is not. And so you now find when the church has acquiesced to the government, that the government now has filled that void and has assumed they can tell the church who the head of the church is. And that's no longer Christ, but it is Caesar. It's exactly what happened in the 30s in Nazi Germany. And we are living in Bonhoeffer's Germany right now. Again, I shared with you a couple years ago that I feel like our nation is like, we're like Jews and we're living in 1934 in Nazi Germany. We can see this stuff coming, but we have no idea how bad it's going to be. Bonhoeffer, of course, was a pastor and a theologian and a seminary professor. And what the Germans did at that time is they said, you may have church, but the state will sanction the church. You may have the Christian flag on this side of the podium, but the Nazi flag has to be here. You have to submit all your sermons to Goebbels or the minister of propaganda. He will then look at the sermons. He will make changes to the sermons, and you must preach that sermon. So you're completely fine to come and worship. You're completely fine to do church like you've always done. We are not telling you you can't have church. We're putting limits and restrictions on what you can actually do. And Bonhoeffer, of course, and many others, saw the writing on the wall, and they said no. So you had the professing church, the Nazi church, and they started what's called the confessing church. The confessing church, of course, had no buildings. The confessing church had no money. Bonhoeffer taught his young seminarians in a barn with no electricity. Food was brought in just from neighbors and stuff because the reality was we have to stand for the purity and the integrity of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Strange message to hear from a man who a decade and a half wrote, love Jesus, hate church. Know what I mean? This is the true church that we're talking about here. So just this week, this week, in Nevada, there are certain rules that the governor of Nevada has decreed for his state. One of the rules is this, like we have in North Carolina, and I assume in South Carolina, that you may have restaurants are open, Um, movie theaters are open, although they're not open here in North Carolina, in Nevada. Gyms are open. Everything is open. And what uh, the only limitation we're doing is however big your building is, whatever the occupancy of your building is, you're limited to 50% of that. Makes sense. We see that here, where there's people outside of Walmart and are counting the people that are coming in and accounting the people that are going out. They know the square foot of the building. They know that they can have 375 people in the building at one time. And so if it's full, we saw this in Lake Wiley when they first started doing this, if there's 375 people in line and there's six people waiting outside until this one leaves and that one comes in, no problem with that. No problem with that, except if you're a church. If you're a church, it doesn't matter how big your building is. It doesn't matter whether or not your building seats 3,000 people. Whether you're a Bethlehem or an Elevation or a Parkwood, you are limited to only 50 people. Why? That, that makes no sense. That's a casino can have 500 to 700 to 1,000 people in there in these smoke-filled rooms where they're all sitting at at tables hacking on each other because it's 50% of their occupancy, but a church is only limited to 50 people. You're persecuting the church. You're violating our First Amendment right. And so there was a group of churches, a group of pastors that decided that they were going to sue. And so they went all the way to the Supreme Court, to the Supreme Court, not of Nevada, but the Supreme Court of the United States. And they said, we need an injunction. We need a ruling on this because this is singling out churches and holding churches to a more stringent, draconian standard than a casino. And the Supreme Court ruled five to four against them, against them. 
in Nevada now, the law of the land, no place else to go, no higher authority than the Supreme Court has said, if the state says you can limit it to 50 people, it's 50 people. Other governors now are emboldened by this. And by the way, the five to four, our satanic plant on the Supreme Court, John Roberts, who during the last six months is like taking this complete about face, of course, was the deciding vote. What's happening here? There's something spiritual going on. There's no place else to go. 50-person cap on church attendance. California takes it one step even further than that. California says, in addition to the cap, we're not even going to let you go inside at all. All church services have to be outside. And while you're having your church service, you cannot have any potluck dinners. You can't do any singing. You can't do anything. In other words, you can come together as a church, but you can't even worship the way that we have always worshiped for thousands of years. You have to practice social distancing, and there's no singing in small groups. There's no singing in practice. There's no singing during the... uh, the actual worship service. And we're even, according to Governor Newsom, and we're even bringing that back to home Bible fellowships. Because what churches are doing now is they're splitting their congregation up into small groups and they're sending them out into the homes of 10 or 12 or 15 so the church can still meet together in separate locations rather than coming together in the yard, the parking lot, or under a tent. And now they're saying, no, the same rules apply there. No singing. Okay, so when is enough enough? When, when, when does the church sit back and say, we've had it? There have been some churches, and it's really sad, but most of the ones that have taken a stand against this government overreach have been from the charismatic persuasion. The more traditional Baptist churches, um, Reformed churches, stuff of that nature, have just kind of sat back and said, okay, it is what it is. We'll kind of do the best we can. Churches in California now have said, enough's enough. We're not going to do that anymore. And uh, there's a reason why. And the reason why is this. All across our nation for the past 60 days, there's been nothing but riots. There have been riots, and there have been burnings, and there have been lootings. They had a huge one in Kentucky just last night. Uh, if, if Facebook is blown up with Maybe yours isn't. My Facebook, but the people I in groups of are blown up with these live feeds. These people are talking about armed anarchy. I was watching one this morning, and uh, one of the, I won't even tell you the group, he's part of because it has a profanity in it. But, but that group is, you know, we ain't going to shoot you. We're going to kill you. And when a shooting starts out here today, it's your responsibility to hit the ground. If you don't, that's on you. They're all armed with AR-15s and, you know, they're all dressed in black garb like some sort of Muslim terrorist. And that's okay. That's okay. As a matter of fact, our government now encourages that. Well, wait a second. You've got thousands of people crammed together this close to each other, like in a mosh pit at a concert, and of course, that's okay. We're not going to sanction those people. We're not going to tell them what they're doing is wrong. We're not going to tell them that they're violating the government, the governor's mandate on social distancing because protesting is too important to regulate. That's a guaranteed right in the Constitution, according to them. I never read that in there, by the way. But freedom to worship is not. You see it coming? I mean, it's here. We live in a bubble because we live way out in North and South Carolina, kind of away from the major metropolitan areas. But even in our town, in Gastonia, at Tony's Ice Cream, Just this last week, you had police officers from all these different counties coming in there, forming a a, a military line around Tony's to keep this mob from burning it to the ground. Why? Because somebody rolled their eyes at somebody else, and everybody wants an opportunity to, to riot. The news media never comes out and says this is wrong. They never come out and chastise those people that are doing this. They burn their cities to the ground and they're cheered. Yet you violate 
getting together at church on Sunday, and they will shut you down. How is this even happening? How do we respond to this hypocrisy? In the past, what we've done is basically just, we'll just let bygones be bygones. We don't want to cause any problems because there's this pandemic, because there's this coronavirus, because there's this worldwide thing out there that we're frightened of. I don't see anybody in here wearing a mask. How come? We don't wear a mask. You know, we don't like to wear a mask when we go to the grocery store. If we go to the grocery store and somebody tells us we have to wear a mask, we don't go to that grocery store anymore. Why? Because it just doesn't make any sense that I put a mask on and somehow that's supposed to protect me from the coronavirus. When all the science says it doesn't. But the mask now has become your rite of passage. Without the mask... Pretty soon, you're not going to be able to buy or sell because there's stores now that have acquiesced. Walmart requires masks everywhere starting uh, last Monday. Sam's Club, Kohl's, uh, I just read this week that McDonald's now is going to require everybody that comes in their store to have a mask. So I walk into the store and order through a mask, but then when I come back to my seat, I guess I can take it off and eat. I mean... It it doesn't make any sense. Vic, and I don't know if it was original with Vic, but he gave this visual picture of the size of the corona, I don't know, whatever we're trying not to get by wearing a mask, and the pores in a mask, and he said it was like trying to protect yourself from mosquitoes with a chain link fence. It doesn't make any sense. There's, There's something going on here. Right. But we have a biblical mandate to do exactly what the scriptures say. And we do. I read to you Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. And Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 clearly delineate what the responsibility of a Christian is. A responsibility of a Christian is to pay taxes. A responsibility of a Christian is to honor the governor and honor the king and and to honor your master, even if you're in a slave-master relationship, not just the good ones, but also the bad ones and the harsh ones. Got that. It's a hard thing to do. We want to live quiet, peaceable lives. We don't want to be involved with politics and all that kind of stuff because our job is to build the kingdom, not an earthly kingdom like the kingdom of the United States, which isn't going to be here forever. Got that. Understand that. It has been my position as hard as it is for this rebellious spirit as I have, to simply acquiesce. But in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, there's another picture painted here. And in this picture, we have a totalitarian government, the Jewish government, who is trying to stamp out Christianity. And we have Peter and John, and they're there at the, at the temple, and this guy gets healed, and so they throw them in jail, and the next day they bring them out, and they say, tell us, you know, did you do this, and by what name, and by what authority is this man healed? It's by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, we don't want to hear that. We don't have anything to do with this Jesus guy, because we just crucified him, and we're hoping this is all going away. And so in chapter 4, they gave a mandate, do not teach or preach anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, according to Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, we're supposed to obey our government. So what they should have done is said, okay, we won't, but there's a higher authority than just civil government, and that higher authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the excuse that the Nazis had for the atrocities that took place at Ostwich and Dachau and Ravensburg, we were just following orders, didn't matter because there's a higher morality than just following orders that lead to chaos and degradation, destruction and death. Make sense? So they beat them because of their refusal. They said, you choose. You decide if it's better for us to listen to you or listen to God. But for us, we're only going to follow the commands of our Lord, even if it violates what you say, 
and even if it cost us our life. And it did for many people. The church, like it was in Bonhoeffer's day, the church is faced with that situation today. We have tried to ignore it, especially um, living where we do, kind of in a, a little bubble here where all the evil stuff happens out there. Well, you know, yes, but it's coming our way. And we too have, have tried not to kind of address the issue. We don't have a church like Times Square Church right down in the middle of New York City. We don't have a church like Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church in a suburb of LA. We don't have churches like that in the middle of Detroit or, or St. Louis or stuff of that nature. I mean, we're, we're kind of isolated here and it's a real great blessing and it's a wonderful place to raise your children, is it not? But it doesn't mean the battle is not real. And it doesn't mean the battle is not coming our way. The principle is this, and I, I encourage you to read all these passages. The principle is we are to obey our civil authorities in all matters. And quit complaining. It is what it is in all matters as long as they do not infringe on God's word. When civil authority says, like it does in China, that you may have one child per family. One child. And so therefore, if you have a child and it happens to be a girl and you don't want a girl because you want the name continued on, you want a boy, and you have another child, the government says that you are to abort that child. Do we follow that law? Never. Never. Because it violates a higher law, which is God's law. Corey Ten Boom and her family. The law was you find Jews, you turn them into us, we put them in cattle cars, we ship them away with the unfit and the gypsies and everybody else, and they die. That's why you are a good citizen. You don't do that, and we come down upon you. Casper Ten Boom, the patriarch of the family, had raised his children differently. And they said, no. No, if someone comes to our door and needs help, the charity, the protection of God's chosen people is far more important than these laws that the Nazis are setting up for the eradication of God's people, and we will follow God's law, and almost every one of them died because of that. If our civil authorities try to infringe on our mandate to obey the Lord, our clear choice is to refuse to obey our civil leaders and to obey the Lord. Why? Because our final allegiance is to him. And although I actually always knew it was coming, it's kind of like when you, um, you know someday that you'll die and go be with the Lord and you talk about that in your 20s and 30s and 40s. Yeah, someday, someday I'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all talk about that day coming, and the doctor tells you it'll happen on Friday. And it's like, I knew that day would come, I just didn't think it would be today. You know what I mean? And then when that happens, you're always caught unprepared. Knew this day was coming. Known this day was coming for a long time. I just never thought it would happen this quickly, although the scripture says that's exactly what happens. It just rolls on top of each other and compounds on each other. Final allegiance is to the Lord. So what in the world do we do? I have to make a decision, and you have to make a decision. And the decision that you will make will be one that will cost you something. It'll cost you just like it costs believers in countries where they have underground churches. You're not allowed to meet above ground. They've confiscated all the church buildings. Maybe like it is in Nazi Germany, the only churches you can go to are state churches. And so you have a choice. I will either fellowship with other believers, but if I do, I'm going to have to go to an underground church. And if I go to an underground church and get found out or someone there betrays me or I get arrested or something of that nature, man, I'm gone to the gulag. I mean, my whole family's going to suffer because of that. That's the life story of Richard Wombrandt. If you remember the persecuted for Christ, voice of the martyrs, what do we choose to do? Well, finally, finally, the church in general is beginning to take a stand. Now, here's what has been happening. 
Ever since this began, there have been some churches that have said, we will not bow down to Caesar. We will continue having our in-face worship services. It doesn't matter what the government says. Most of those churches are small, like ours, and they're in places like Montana. And those people became very arrogant and became very contentious. And the larger churches, the more prominent churches, even in our own community, Bethlehem and Parkwood and First Baptist and stuff of that nature, they took a measured approach, which is exactly what we did. We don't know how bad this is going to be. So for the sake of the people in our congregation and the people that we will run into that, that may be of high risk, it would behoove us to sacrifice voluntarily, not by mandate, voluntarily sacrifice our freedom to come together to inconvenience us all for the sake of the Shirley's and the Sandys and, and the Robert and Juanitas, for example, that are high risk in that area until we can figure out what's going on. It makes sense to me. It seemed like the prudent, Christian, wise thing to do. Didn't it seem that way to you? And it was a, it was a sacrifice on everybody. We missed the fellowship together. We missed the Bible studies and, and stuff of that nature. And okay, that's been 20 weeks now. That's been almost 40% of this year has gone by. And what we have learned is that what is hyped up isn't exactly what's happening out there. And it's okay if you're protesting and all these thousands and thousands of people who get together in these hot spot areas and are protesting, there's no massive breakout there. And then when we say, well, you know what, maybe it's okay if we start meeting again, then the government comes down in many states and it could happen in ours, probably quicker in our state than in South Carolina. Um, the governors can come back and say, no, 50 people. And if you meet beyond that, then we're going to single you guys out as the bad people. The Black Lives Matter, Antifa, all these other litanies of groups out here, they're protesting their rights against something we agree with. We don't agree with what you're doing. And so therefore, you're the villain and they're the heroes. And so what does a church do? I mean, what are we supposed to do? There was a um, poem that came out. It's actually listed in the United States Holocaust Museum. And it's, this poem is also, the one I'm showing you now is the one that's in the Holocaust Museum in Israel, if you've ever gone there uh, in Jerusalem. But here's what it says about the time that they were carting away the undesirables in Nazi Germany. And the name of the poem is called, First They Came. First they came for the communists. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Okay. Then they came for the socialist. And I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. That was them. They got what they deserved. Then they came for the trade unionist. Remember, it was their culture. And I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I didn't speak out then either because I really wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak out for me. This is the situation that the church is finding itself in. Again, we're living in Bonhoeffer's Germany, and it's time for us, way past time for us, to prepare ourselves spiritually for what is coming our way. Now, what pastors in general have been looking for, especially in the non-charismatic persuasion, is they've been looking for, I say this the right way, our spiritual mentors to make a decision, our spiritual mentors to make a measured decision about the, what we need to do so that we could approach this unified rather than approach this as splinter groups. Rodney Howard Brown, who is really a charlatan down in Tampa, Florida, pitches this big deal about, I'm not going to follow the mandates, and they throw him in jail, and none of us care because the guy's a loon. I mean, it's just a publicity stunt. But there's a bigger issue here. And so Grace Community Church, which is the church that John MacArthur has been pastor of for 40 years, I think maybe 50 years, uh, one of my spiritual heroes, really the one that mentored me through his teaching tapes. I think Mo has probably listened to as many of his sermons as, as I have. 
uh, incredible expositor of God's word, lives in the hotbed of this right near um, the downtown area of Los Angeles. What uh, Governor Newsom has done in California is they've said that we made these restrictions on 30 counties in our state, which covers about 80% of the population. In other words, if we lived in California, we way out here probably wouldn't have these restrictions. But if you live near LA, then obviously you do. And so what Grace Community Church has been doing is they have been meeting in a tent outside, and like everybody else, they've been pretty much just streaming their, uh, their worship services. And so um, this week, Grace Community Church, the elders of Grace Community Church and, and John MacArthur uh, issued a statement. And um, our, as a church here, our statement of belief, our, our doctrinal statement, if you pretty much look at that, is probably about 98% the same doctrinal statement that Grace Community Church has. We did this when we, when we first got started, but, uh, but they made a statement on the government restrictions to the church. And so they basically said, this is what we are going to be doing, and here's the reason why. It's a long treaties position paper. It's four pages long. Here is why, and this is where we stand biblically. I happen to totally agree with it. And what I've done is I've made some changes to it to make it apply to us, and I would like to read this to you because this is the position I believe as a congregation we should take. Not necessarily because Grace Community Church is taking it, it's simply because it's the the most complete, articulated view of the position of the church and the lordship of the church versus the position of the state. I've already... um, shared with you what we have done in the past, but let me go ahead and read this to you if I can now. Karen says that when I read something, people have a tendency of zoning out. Is that true? Would it make it be easier if I stood up and walked around while I read it? Okay. Please pay attention. Church Without Walls, Gastonia, North Carolina, Sunday, July 26, 2020. Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church, and I will leave out all the scripture verses that back this up. He is also king of kings, sovereign over every earthly authority. We as a church without walls have always unwaverly stood on these biblical principles. We have always proclaimed the sovereignty of God. My life verse proclaims the sovereignty of God. Our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. The center point of the life-changing truth that came to me 15 years after I got saved is that God is sovereign. He's sovereign in salvation, sovereign in election. He's sovereign in everything. And as his people, we are subject to his will and his commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not comply with a government-imposed limitation or restriction on our Sunday morning worship services or on any other church-related event or gatherings. Why? Because to do so would place us in disobedience to the clear command of our Lord. And those commands will be laid out for you in just a moment. Some will think this position conflicts with the command to be subject to governing authorities as revealed in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. I've already read those to you. And the scripture does require careful, willing obedience to all governing authorities including kings, governors, employers, and their agents, not to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. As long as our government does not attempt to assert authority over the church or issue orders that forbid our obedience to God's law, then their decrees and mandates are to be obeyed, whether we agree with their rulings or not. In other words, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 still binds the actions of individual Christians. We are to obey civil authorities as powers that God himself ordained. You see that in the text that I've already read to you. However, while our civil government has divine authority to rule the state, Neither of these texts or any other scripture grants civic rulers power or jurisdiction over the church. That was the mistake the church made in Nazi Germany. God has established three institutions within human society, the family, the state, and the church. And each institution has a jurisdiction 
or sphere of authority which limits must be respected. A father's authority, for example, is limited to his own family. I don't have the authority over David and Susan's kids or grandkids. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. God has not granted civic rulers, I'm sorry, and governmental authority is limited to the boundaries of a nation or a community. God has not granted civic rulers' authority over the doctrine, practice, or inner workings of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to a specific jurisdiction. The church does not have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore or circumvent parental authorities. Parents do not have the authority to manage civil matters which circumvent government officials. And government officials have no right to interfere in church matters that undermine or disregard God-given authority to pastors and elders. When any of these three institutions exceeds the limits of its jurisdiction, it is the duty, like with our government, with the three branches and checks and balances, it is the duty of the other institutions to address that overreach and bring them back in line. Therefore, when any government official issues an order relegating worship, such as a ban on singing, caps on attendance, or prohibition against gatherings and services, he steps outside the legitimate limits of his God-ordained authority of a civic official and takes to himself the authority that God expressly grants only to the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign over his kingdom, which is the church. His rule is mediated to local churches through their pastors and elders who teach his word. Therefore, in response to the recent state orders requiring churches to limit or suspend meetings indefinitely or to limit the number of people who can gather to worship, which is what we have in our state right now, we, the Church Without Walls, respectfully inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction in this matter. Furthermore, faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our worship services or church activities. Said another way, it has never been the task of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. Caesar himself is subject to God. Jesus affirmed that principle when he told Pilate, quote, you would have no power, that word is exousia, meaning authority. You will have no power or authority against me unless it had been given you from above. And because Christ is head of the church, ecclesiastical matters pertain to his kingdom, not Caesar's. Jesus drew a stark distinction between those two kingdoms when he said, quote, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Our Lord himself always rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's, but he never offered to Caesar what belongs to God. As pastors and elders and church members, we cannot hand over to earthly authority any privilege or power that belongs solely to Christ as head of his church. Pastors and elders are the ones to whom Christ has given the duty and the right to exercise his spiritual authority in the church. And scripture alone defies how and whom they are to serve. They have no duty to follow orders from a civic government attempting, now note this, attempting to regulate the worship or governance of the church. We have for a season, like all churches, voluntarily, voluntarily followed the, the mandate for health reasons, but now that mandate for health reasons has passed, and now it becomes more draconian. In fact, pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority in church to a civic ruler have advocated their responsibility before their Lord and violated the God-ordained spheres of authority as much as the secular officials who illegitimately impose his authority upon the church. For an example, our church doctrinal statement includes this paragraph, and it was there since we began as a church over 20 years ago. Here's what it says. We teach the autonomy of the local church, free from any external authority or control. 
with the right of self-government and freedom from the interference of any hierarchy of individuals or organizations. We teach that it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other for the presentation and propagation of the faith. Each local church, however, through its elders and their interpretation and application of Scripture, should be the sole judge of the measure and method of this cooperation. Elders should determine all matters of membership, policy, discipline, benevolence, government as well. In other words, the final authority with the church rests with the church, not with the government. In short, as the church, we do not need the state's permission to serve and worship our Lord as he has commanded. The church of Christ, the church is Christ's precious bride. She belongs to him alone. She exists by his will and serves under his authority. He will tolerate no assault on her purity and no infringement of his headship over her. All of that was established when Jesus said, quote, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Remember, Christ's authority is, and here's a quote from Ephesians 1, far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but that also in the age to come. And he, this is God the Father, has put all things under he, Christ's feet, and gave him Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Accordingly, the honor that we rightly owe to our earthly governors and magistrates, and that's from Romans 13, does not include compliance when they attempt to subvert sound doctrine, corrupt biblical morality, exercise church authority, or supplant Christ as the head of the church in any other way. The biblical order is clear. Christ is Lord over Caesar and not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. Conversely, the church does not in any sense rule the state. Against these, again, these are distinct kingdoms, and Christ is sovereign over both. Neither church nor state has any higher authority than Christ himself, who declared, again, quote, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now note this. We are not making a constitutional argument, even though the First Amendment of the United States Constitution expressly affirms this principle with its opening words, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The rights we are appealing to were not created by the Constitution. It was one of those unalienable rights granted solely by God who ordained human government and established both the extent and limitations of the state's authority. Our argument, therefore, is purposely not grounded in the First Amendment. It is based on the same biblical principles that the amendment itself was founded upon. The exercise of true religion is a divine duty given men and women created in God's image. In other words, freedom of worship is a command of God, not a privilege granted by the state. An additional point needs to be made in this context. Christ is always faithful and true. Would you agree? Human governments are not so trustworthy. Scripture says, quote, the whole world lies under the sway or the power of the wicked one. That refers, of course, to Satan. John 12, 31 and 16, 11 call him the ruler of this world, meaning he wields power and influence through this world's political systems. Jesus said of him, he is a liar and the father of lies. And history is full of painful reminders that government power is easily and frequently abused for evil purposes. Politicians may manipulate statistics. The media may cover up or camouflage inconvenient truths. So a discerning church cannot passively or automatically comply if the government orders a shutdown of congregational meetings even if the reason given is a concern for public health and safety. Why? Because the church, by definition, listen carefully, is an assembly. That is the literal Greek meaning of the word ecclesia that we call church. The word ecclesia means an assemble or an assembly of the called out ones. 
That's the definition of a church. A non-assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. Christians are therefore commanded not to forsake the practice of meeting together. And no state has the right to restrict, limit, or forbid the assembling of believers. We have always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. Now it looks like it may be our time to practice the same. When officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, they attempt to impose... Let me start this over. I want you to catch this paragraph. When officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, which they're doing in North Carolina now. They attempt to impose a restriction that, in principle, makes it impossible for the saints to gather as a church. We don't have that problem because we're small. But say we're at Parkwood. Parkwood is limiting their people that they come to the worship services to 25%. They have a lot of draconian, but they have to wear masks and all that kind of stuff in order to comply. So the entire church of Parkwood can never come together as a congregation. When officials prohibit singing in worship services, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for people to obey God's commands of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. When officials mandate social distancing, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible to experience the close communion between believers that is commanded in Romans 6.16 and a litany of other verses here. We must submit to the Lord. Although we in America have been unaccustomed to government intrusion into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is by no means the first time in church history that Christians have had to deal with government overreach or hostile leaders. Persecution of the church government by authorities has been the norm and not the exception throughout church history. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ, do you remember the rest of that verse? Will suffer persecution. Historically, The two main persecutors have always been secular governments and false religions. Most of Christianity's martyrs have died because they refused to obey such authorities. This is, after all, what Christ promised. Quote, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In the last of the Beatitudes, he said, quote, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake or because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As government policy moves further away from biblical principles, and as legal and political pressure against the church intensifies, we must recognize that the Lord may be using these pressures as a means of purging the church to reveal the true church. That's what happens with eternal persecution external persecution. The fluff burns off, and what's left is the true committed nugget of the truth with which God can do incredible things. Succumbing to government overreach may cause churches to remain closed indefinitely. How can the true church of Jesus Christ distinguish herself in such a hostile environment? Truly, there is only one way, bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even where government seems sympathetic to the church, Christian leaders have often needed to push back against aggressive state officials. In Calvin's Geneva, for example, church officials at times needed to fend off attempts by the city council to govern aspects of worship, church polity, and church discipline. The Church of England has never fully reformed precisely because the British crown and parliament have always meddled in church affairs. In 1662, the Puritans were ejected from their pulpits because they refused to bow to government mandates regarding their use of the Book of Common Prayer, of wearing the vestments, and of other ceremonial aspects of state-regulated worship. The British monarch still claims to be the supreme governor of the head of the Anglican church. But again, Christ is the one true head of his church. And we intend to honor that vital truth in our, all our gatherings. For that preeminent reason, we cannot accept and will not bow to the intrusive restrictions government officials now want to pose on all our congregations. We offer this response without anger, 
not out of hearts that are combative or rebellious, but with a sobering awareness that we must answer to the Lord Jesus Christ for the stewardship he has given us as shepherds of his precious flock. To government officials, we respectively say with the apostles, quote, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen and give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, Acts 4.19. And our unwavering reply to that question is the same as the apostles. We must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. Our prayer is that every faithful Christian and congregation will stand with us in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ as we move forward. That is the position that I think our church needs to take. It will be joined by countless other churches that hopefully will take the same position. The persecution will come to us last because we are again small and isolated and are not really all that popular, just like the rioting will come to us last where we live. But nevertheless, there are brothers and sisters who are standing in the fire right now that, uh, need affirmation. So John MacArthur and Grace Community Church took this position and they stated that they will be meeting together, still be streaming, but they will be meeting together as a congregation to, uh, to follow God's mandate. They will not practice social distancing. They will not limit the number of people there. They will, of course, if you feel comfortable wearing a mask, you wear a mask. They will, you know, wash down everything and do everything they can to uh, protect the congregation, and the response from the authorities at that time is if you do, your power will be cut. So they will simply cut the power off to the church because they will not comply. And you're going to find this is going to be happening everywhere. Everywhere. This is the times in which we live. And it is past time that we learned as believers to simply say, no. Let me explain this to you. Why, um, why the deal with mask? I've had a hard time understanding that. Scientifically, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't protect you from anything. And, qu and quite honestly, if masks protect, then we don't need a social distance. And if social distancing protects, why are we wearing masks? And you know, there's, you've seen all the memes on Facebook. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. But now all of a sudden, for some reason, for some reason, the powers to be out there and culture in general has decided now that your mark, your precaution that allows you to go to Walmart and other places to buy and sell will see be some sort of mask. The mask now identifies you as not a carrier. It identifies you as somebody who has lined up. It's, it's, it's made it easy for us because of fear to now have to put these masks on. Nobody enjoys doing it. Nobody wants to do it, but we do it anyway. Last Wednesday, I was in Clover, South Carolina, not exactly a liberal bastion of uh, our culture, and I was walking into the post office, and there was somebody ahead of me, and they were probably, I don't know, six or eight feet ahead of me, and as he got to the door and opened the door, he turned back and looked at me. I was simply dropping off a letter and a package, and he looked at me, and I didn't have a mask on, and he pressed himself against the door, wanted me to go in front of him, like to make himself as, as small as possible with fear in his eyes, like typhoid Mary is coming by, and where does all this come from? Then I see these memes on Facebook, there's a bunch of Amish people. And the Amish people are saying, do you know why we have no problem with the coronavirus in our communities? Because we don't have televisions. You know, and it's like, it's a, like crazy what's going on. So Lord, why? Why the mask? What is it doing? It may be. This whole thing may be, because there's always, you know, there's always a political reason. We're going to tank the economy. We're going to crush everything. We're going to make everybody miserable. So Biden becomes president. Okay. But Satan's behind everything that happens, so there has to be some sort of spiritual reason. And it's possible, I read this last week and it made so much sense to me, that this really could be a dry run for the mark of the beast. It's not the mark of the beast, it's not called the, ma the mask of the beast, but it shows you how fear controls people. Fear of, I mean, if I, Scott came up to me uh, Thursday night and Scott said, hey, I know somebody who knows somebody now who has the coronavirus. I don't even know anybody. I don't even know anybody who really knows anybody that has it. And especially someone who's like on a, you know, a respirator in the hospital and it's kind of touch and go. Yet we're 
just frightened. Think what happens. So everybody has to wear a mask. And one by one, because of political pressure or whatever, these various businesses acquiesce to the mark of the mask. Walmart, Kohl's, Kroger's now, Sam's, McDonald's, who knows what else? Clemmer's down here. You go in there to, to you walk into Clemmer's to pay for your gas, no mask, you don't, you know, no service. Okay, that's their right. You know, it's the same thing with no shirt, no shoes, no service. I understand that. that that's their right. And pretty soon, that number's going to increase. It's not going to decrease. Then a vaccine comes out. And when the vaccine comes out, everybody has to take the vaccine. And if you don't take the vaccine, what is wrong with you? What, do you want to infect my children, infect my loved ones? And how are we going to know whether you've taken the vaccine? Well, you'll probably have to have a health I don't know, passport card. You have to show your cards. I didn't bring my cards. I don't even know if I have a card. And, and then we're going to try to figure out, and this is hypothetical here, we're going to figure out some indelible way to make sure that you have, have taken this vaccine that protects everybody else from your selfishness. At the very same time all this is happening, we have a coin shortage. Where did that come from in America? We no longer take a Take cash. If you take cash, it's going to round it up to the nearest dollar. What we want is we want digital currency. The very week that the Federal Reserve announced the coin shortage, or the Mint announced the coin shortage, the the Federal Reserve came out with a statement saying we are moving our nation to a digital currency. And when they move our nation to a digital currency, it's really simple. Did Tim take the, uh, the vaccine? No. All right, you have three days, Tim, or we shut your funds off. Well, you know what? I don't, uh, I don't really have to buy my stuff at Walmart because I could go down here to Mr. Moses or Tim's. I could buy a cow and feed my family for a long time, and I'll pay him in cash. Not if it's a digital society. Not if cash is now deemed this, this which makes no sense at all. If I can't breathe on you, you're taking my money that I have. We're moving in times, and who knows how it's going to turn out. And this may be just a conditioning to see how committed we are to live without fear. Let me close with this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, the easiest way for you to have a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me carefully, is quit sinning. Stop sinning. Turn from your wicked ways. Well, well, I I, I don't sin anymore. No, no, no. This is at the Lord's standards. Turn. The word turn means to go back, to change, to reestablish, to restore that kind of relationship. Turn from your, this is personal, wicked ways. And the word wicked here means bad or evil in a moral sense compared to a moral standard. In other words, it's not bad or evil or wicked based on what you think it is, what our society thinks it is, what seems okay. I mean, everybody I know has sex before marriage. I mean, it's just what we do in our society. After all, we, we watch it on television all the time, and it's just a couple clicks away. And, and so that's what our society does. And if I actually am crazy enough to say, you know, I want to wait until marriage and offer everything I am to my husband, and all my friends laugh at me, Facebook flames me, and the media says I'm some sort of crazy person. True? I mean, how many men do you know that actually stood up to that? They all acquiesce because it's just what the culture. Do you feel bad about that? You want to commit your life to Christ yet you're still having an immoral relationship with your girlfriend? Oh, I don't really consider that a sin. <laughs> it's, it's not up to you. It's not up to you. We play video games and we take video games and we are literally killing thousands of people virtually on these video games and we think that's Christ honoring? It's okay with that? Have we ever even asked him how he feels? about? Well, it's just a video game and it doesn't seem wicked to me. Can't imagine having the Apostle Paul or John the Baptist or Billy Graham sitting next to you. Here's a joystick, man. Let's go kill some Nazis or whatever it is. The most gratuitous way we do it is better. The stuff we watch on television. I mean, what is wicked? What, what is this moral standard? If you haven't watched it in a while, you need to go watch this movie called Time Changers. 
It's a Pure Flix movie, and it came out, I don't know, 20 years ago. And the idea is back in the 1800s, back during D.L. Moody's day, they invented a time machine and they were able to transport one of their people, a pastor and a college professor in a seminary up into the future day today. And he joins this church and they go visiting to invite people to come to church and, and he's standing there and there are these children watching this couple kiss and make out on television. He stands in front of him and says, stop, stop. And, and the parents are going, what are you doing? He goes, this couple's not even married and your children shouldn't even watch this. What are you, crazy? We all grew up on that stuff. It's no big deal. And it's, it's such an eye-opening view of how Laodicean we are. Turn from their wicked ways. Lord, what is a wicked way? Well, why don't you look in his word and whatever he says, that is his command. And doing anything other than that is a sin. It's a sin because it's bad or evil, not compared to the standard or your friends or what the church does, but it's bad or evil compared to finite, absolute truth. And is continuing an immoral relationship or, or doing the stuff that we do that we know is wrong, but we've grown desynthesized to it, is that worth not having God's blessing during a time when we need it more than ever? True? Oh, you had me at the conspiracy stuff, Steve. I was really getting into that, but, but I'm not interested in this because there's too many things. In my, if I do that, I won't have any fun at all. Well, so sin... Is fun? Well, yeah, it is. It's fleshly fun. Again, I'll ask everybody, how's your spiritual life? Anybody here at 10? Probably not. Why? A lot of it has to do with the fact because of the sin in our life. And we are absolutely running out of time. So that you won't forget this, let me close this way. So what are we supposed to do? Really simple. Rocky three. If you remember correctly, Rocky Balboa was defeated by Clubber Lang, Mr. T. And so Apollo Creed, his former nimbus in the first two Rockies, comes and starts training him. But there's something wrong in the head of Rocky Balboa. He's not even training. He's, he's, he's kind of messed up. He, he's not even interested in fighting anymore. And everybody's getting upset with him. Everybody's getting upset with him. And the dialogue goes like this in that scene. What's the matter with you, man? This guy's going to kill you. He's going to just pound you, and you're not doing anything. What's the matter with you? And Rocky says, tomorrow, let's, I'll be different tomorrow. Classic line in movie lore. There is no tomorrow. It is now. It is today. There is no tomorrow. We have a limited amount of time to prepare ourselves for what's coming our way. And I apologize for not being more insistent about this over the last year, but I don't know how to communicate this any more intensely than I am right now. There is no tomorrow. Well, God won't judge our nation, really? Tell me one thing about our nation that would make God not judge it. We have the wholesale slaughter of the unborn, and we're getting ready to have an election where if Biden is elected in, it's going to get even worse than that. We've got homosexuality now, is a, which God calls an abomination, which is now a civil right. We've got chaos and all the things you find out that's, that the Lord says will come and mark the last days. Are, they're right in front of us. And the church has done nothing, nothing, We've just been satisfied to get together and do our own little things, and they are no longer content with letting us do that. They are bringing it to us, and now we have to make a stand. So humble yourself. Pray. Seek his face. Turn from your wicked ways. Do it today, because there is no tomorrow. Amen? Let me pray.